If you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. This, the first of several weeks where we'll answer that question that Stephen ended his prayer with, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Appropriate focus for us in the month of December as we approach Christmas. And again, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to grab a pew Bible. The red ones are hymnals, black ones are pew Bibles in the chair rack in front of you there. It's uh, page 807 in the pew Bible. It's also printed on the inside cover of the bulletin. Without further ado, hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessings now as we consider his word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you on a dark and dreary morning in a dark and dreary world. We need your light and your truth. So we pray that you would speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. This we ask in Jesus' great name. Amen. Why is history class so boring? Not an invitation for everyone to shout out their answers at the same time, but a good question. In a recent article says, why is history so boring? It's because at its worst, it's all names and dates. No stories, no color, no meaning. At its worst, that's what history is. For example, 
1789 to 1797. If that's all you have, that's kind of boring. Much more boring than, say, the story of a six-year-old who couldn't lie to his father, who must confess that he cut down the cherry tree, whose father then replied that his son's honesty was worth more to him than a thousand cherry trees. Now, my friend, the history professor, thinks that that tale may be slightly distorted over time, but based on a factual tale, and even so, doesn't it tell you, at the very least, what people thought about George Washington's honesty and his integrity? Again, narratives, stories, they give meaning in a way that mere facts, names, dates cannot. Why mention all this? Well, because some of you are looking at today's passage wondering if I've gone mad. Why are we starting Advent with a, with a boring biblical history lesson? It's all names and dates. Wait, wait, actually, it's worse. It's just names. There's not even dates in here. True. My goal is not for us to memorize these names, although Andrew Peterson's song about this passage can help you do that. <coughs> Excuse me. My goal is to begin to understand the stories behind these names, stories that are more inspiring than Camelot and Carnegie Hall, stories that are more redemptive, more sweeping in their grand narratives, because these names are the story of the world, the history of salvation, the history of our Savior. In December, of course, we celebrate the first advent, the first coming of Jesus, the Son of God who took on human flesh. And we await and anticipate the second coming, the second advent of Jesus, who will come again to take us with him forever. And as we wait, we need to know who is Jesus. This passage tells us that Jesus is the Son of David, promised by God's word in spite of human failure, born out of human weakness, in order to save the weak. We're going to unpack that now, starting with, uh, with, with four points, starting right here. First point, the Lord is faithful to his promises. The Lord is faithful to his promises. You see that weave throughout these 17 verses. See, this passage tells us about Jesus, the son of David, and in the process, it also tells us something about our holy triune God, God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who existed in eternity past, long before you and me, long before Matthew ever put pen to paper in writing this genealogy. But why does Matthew start with this list? Well, genealogies were very important to his primarily Jewish audience. But why should I care, you might be wondering. Because this list of names proves that God always keeps his word. That God always keeps his word. He said that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in Abraham through his descendants. And, and what do you know? Here's one of Abraham's descendants who will save his people from their sins. He said that the scepter would not depart from Judah, that the house, the dynasty of David would endure. And this list, this list it tells us the dynasty endured a deportation or an exile somehow. God always keeps his word. The Lord is always faithful to his promises. And I imagine many of us are sick and tired of unfaithful people in our lives, aren't you? Tired maybe of 
Unfaithful politicians will brazenly tell us what we want to hear until public opinion changes and then they just do it again. Or maybe it's a friend or a family member who's unfaithful. Maybe it's a, another type of public person or institution that you think it's un, is unfaithful. Maybe it's pastors and church leaders. I don't know your history. Maybe your pastor at some point was a wolf in sheep's clothing. Maybe not. Todd Pruitt recently wrote an article online titled, You Probably Have a Good Pastor. I suspect he's right. I hope I'm not the exception. Even if I'm wrong, even if I'm the exception, again, I pray I'm not. Even if you're the exception, you had a bad pastor. Someone who proved to be unfaithful, untrustworthy, even if that's the case. Don't let that convince you that God is untrustworthy, because he isn't. God is not a man that he should lie. You may be here today because a family member dragged you. You, you may think that religion, Jesus, God, all this stuff is crazy. You, you may think I'm crazy. After all, pastors show up in headlines doing stupid things sometimes. My friend, you may not trust me yet, but you can trust God. You can trust God's word. And I pray that you'll find a community of people that trust him too. And I pray that all of us would have grace to trust him more as the hymn says, oh, for grace to trust him more. See, that's the point of this story. The point is not to turn the Bible into some kind of numerical code to predict the future or something like that. You might notice Matthew has this obsession, it seems, with the number 14, the end, the final verse that we read. Matthew is using something called gematria, assigning a numerical value to King David's name. You see, DVD, it's how you spell David's name without the vowels. It's true in Hebrew as well. It's the fourth letter, the sixth letter, and the fourth letter again. And if you add them up, you get 14. And Matthew is using this coincidence to make a theological point. See, the Old Testament story, it's about the establishment of a good and godly king named David, 14 generations after Abraham, as well as the sad end of his dynasty, seemingly, 14 generations later, in the reestablishment of it all, approximately 14 generations later, through a much better king named Jesus. The Lord has kept his promise to give us another son of David, great David's greater son. The Lord is faithful to his promises. We should be encouraged by that as well as by this. Secondly, you see that the Lord is gracious to the undeserving. He's gracious to the undeserving. You see it in the first stanza, the first six verses. To the undeserving, or we could have said despised, disregarded, overlooked. All those are, are the case. You see stories of all that throughout this passage. But Think, for example, of the overlooked. There are five women in this genealogy. Pretty remarkable for a Hebrew genealogy, you see. You might even say the Bible is, is, is progressive in a sense compared to the culture of its day. Why do I say that? Am I trying to say that we should always, therefore, be on the side of progress and change? No, I, I don't think that. Don't think the Bible says that. By the way, if you want to say that, you also need to define what progress and what change is good and healthy and biblical. But next time we hear someone say that the Bible has a 
disrespectful view of women and their place in society. We should pump the brakes just a bit. We should realize that the Bible often showed more honor and more respect to, the, to women than the culture of its day when it was written. There are women here in the genealogy. That might be surprising. The son of David, son of God, not ashamed to name his female ancestors, humanly speaking. He's not afraid to recognize the overlooked of their day. God, the ultimate author of the passage, not ashamed to name Gentile women in Jesus' genealogy. Think about it. Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, also known as the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Hittite is not mentioned here. It's mentioned in 2 Samuel. They were all Gentiles, not Jews. And Tamar, mentioned in verse 3, might have been a Gentile too. Mary, the fifth woman whose name was obviously a Jew, but the, the inclusion of so many Gentile women reinforces again that the Lord is faithful to keep his promises to the Gentiles, to all the nations of the earth, to be a light to the nations. It also shows us the gospel is for all kinds of people, not just the privileged few who were born into the right family. And not only... Uh, do you see women here? Not only are they Gentile women, but some of them are women of, uh, how should we say this? Well, well, most, four of them, were suspected of marital irregularity. Actually, so was Mary, suspected at the very least. She was suspected, though it wasn't true. Marital irregularity. Some would say they were of morally dubious reputations. To be slightly more clear, Knox Chamblin calls them sexual irregularities. That's what they were at least suspected of. What do I mean? Well, the story of Tamar in verse 3 involves incest, deception, and more. There's Rahab, verse 5. Best we can tell, she's a working mother. Also known as a working girl. Someone who practiced the world's oldest profession, prostitution. Ruth, verse 5. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, may have encouraged her to seduce her future husband after he'd had a few glasses of wine. Best we can tell, Ruth Boaz had better morals than Ruth's mother-in-law. They didn't follow her advice. Well, then there's Bathsheba, verse 6, not even named. Why? Because she was the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. He's making a point, isn't he? She's the wife of Uriah. That was her rightful husband, a good man who was murdered by King David, who, yes, he repented, but before that, this was his dark hour. Uriah was murdered by King David, the man who committed adultery with Bathsheba. You see, if Christians created the story of the Bible, the story of Jesus, if we created a whitewashed narrative of the history of our religion, as is sometimes alleged, then we did a really bad job, didn't we? Unless it's all true, as I believe it is. Unless the point of it all was not a whitewashed narrative. Unless the point was to say our Savior was born out of human weakness, not out of human greatness. He came for the lowly, the despised, the messy. He came to redeem us. Our Savior was born into human weakness. He didn't get VIP treatment all the way to Calvary. They did not shut down the entire wing of the hospital where he was born. 
think that happened for Kanye and Kim Kardashian's baby. I might be wrong, but our Savior embraced human weakness, triumphed over it in spite of it. Our weakness could not break God's promise to save. And notice how, again, he embraces that weakness. It's, if, it's as if he says in these opening verses, who are my ancestors? Well, humanly speaking, well, one's a former prostitute. One of them married a murderer and an adulterer. And oh, yes, they're morally dubious people. You could say that, yes. They're sinners, all of them. All of them saved by my grace. All of them included among my people, part of my story. And do you realize this morning that you can be part of that story? That the Lord is gracious to the undeserving. That all people are undeserving people, but not all of us realize it. Not all of us come to the Savior of the undeserving. Not all of us realize that we need to keep coming back daily to this Savior of the undeserving. And for those who never come to that Savior, I, I urge you, please don't tune out the next list of names because while the Lord is gracious to the undeserving, we also see thirdly that the Lord is just to the wicked. The Lord is just to the wicked. You see it in verses 7 through 11. Justice can be a good word. If you've been wronged by somebody else, what do you want? You want justice. You want someone else to give, give you justice. But in this section, I want us to see that God can also give justice to us when we don't repent of sin or wickedness if we never do that. Why do I say that? He gave justice to a wicked generation. He kept his promise to punish the wicked, the proud, the complacent, the ones who ignored his word the ones who thought they didn't need his help, the ones who thought they didn't need to do anything different. What do I mean? Where do you see this? Well, again, verses two through six, what we already read, that's a triumph of God's grace. Despite <clears throat> human failure, morally dubious circumstances, God keeps his promise. We go from, from Abraham to David, from Father Abraham to King David, and then what happens? It all goes downhill after verse six. You'll notice careful readers, he omits some names. Most genealogies do that. Different theories abound as to why Matthew does that. He doesn't say why, so we shouldn't speculate too much, but the best theories assume that he omits names of those who were extraordinarily wicked or maybe had a wicked relative, if you know who Queen Athaliah is, or those who finished life on a bad note. I won't go through all those theories, but nonetheless, verse 11 this section, it ends with this pregnant phrase, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Deportation or exile. Neither one sounds very fun, does it? And why did that happen? Well, one, because God said it would and because Israel's kings were wicked. God said it would happen. Leviticus 26, 14 to 39. I'm not going to read all that. But one example of God saying something like this, I will send you into exile or scatter you among the nations if you repeatedly sin against me. And note the word repeatedly there. God is a God of second chances. We, we hear that. The Bible affirms that. We know that. He's not just second chances, third chances. Sometimes many, many more chances. Praise the Lord for that. But God will not be mocked. You might think that you can live as you please, and then repent on your deathbed, and hey, I'm covered. 
But what if you die suddenly? Before the good times have ended? Do you think the all-knowing sovereign Lord will be tricked that easily? God is merciful. He did not exile Israel after the first wicked king, their first unfaithful generation. He gave them many chances. Some of you know Judah, the southern kingdom, had, had some evil kings, but they had some good ones too. Whereas Israel, the so-called northern kingdom, had evil king after evil king. And so eventually God kept his word to both of them, both halves of that divided kingdom due to a civil war. He promised to punish them, and he did. Sent them into exile. Now, what do we make of that, those of us who live in America, not ancient Israel? Well, let's start with some biblical facts and principles here. God's salvation is by grace, through faith, in Jesus our Savior. None of us deserve it. None of us can earn it. We can only realize our poverty of spirit and receive with empty hands what he graciously gives. Secondly, realize God kept his word of promise and punishment. God promised to punish Israel by exiling them if they were disobedient, and he did. The whole nation, in this case. Some exiles were saved by faith even though God punished the nation as he said he would. In this case, he said, I'll hold a nation responsible for the sins of its leaders and the majority of its people. Today, what does God tell us? He tells us he still promises to punish wicked individuals who never repent of their wickedness. Individuals. And today, the punishment is far worse than living in a foreign land with a foreign language and foreign gods. The eternal punishment that God promises to those who never repent of sin, those who never embrace Christ as Savior, it's described as the outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, what some have called conscious eternal torment. You might try to dismiss all that. You might think that all that's just a story that Christians tell to scare children into believing. But my friend, you're the one who's ignoring things. If you say that, what if, what if God is real? What if he's faithful to keep all his promises recorded in his word? The promise to save the undeserving and the promise to punish those who never repent of wickedness. And even more, what if he... What if he has the power to do all this? The power to open the eyes of skeptics, the power to overcome all your doubts, the power to work salvation out of weakness, the power to do the impossible. Because isn't that the final thing that this list of names shows us this morning? Yes, the Lord is just to the wicked, but also, fourthly, the Lord is powerful for the weak. The Lord is powerful for the weak. You see it in verses 12 through 17. Uh, powerful to the weak. We changed the preposition there, didn't we? Yes, we did, because he's powerful for the weak, on behalf of the weak, doing for the weak what the weak cannot do for themselves. Now, didn't we already see that in verses 1 through 6, through the men and women who sinned were sinned against? Of course we did, but I think you see it even more in verses 12 through 17. One of my rejected outlines, yes, if you're wondering, sometimes they end up on the cutting room floor. This one partially did, I suppose. One of the rejected outlines for today looked like this, verses 1 through 6. Sexual sinners produce a king, David, 
Verses 6 through 11, a dynasty of kings produces an exile. Verses 12 through 17, an obscure line produces Christ. But I put an asterisk by produces because, of course, they didn't really produce him, did they? Notice the way verse 16 is worded. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom... Jesus was born, some passive language there. Next week, we'll explain it more. Joseph is Jesus' legal father. Joseph is not Jesus' biological father. The way Matthew words verse 16, very differently than verses 2 to 15, it's a clue of that. Joseph did not beget Jesus, to use a King James term. The Lord brought forth a Savior from Mary, by the power of the Holy Spirit in a way that was so unbelievable that even righteous, just Joseph thought at first that Mary must have betrayed him. If the baby isn't mine, and and I know that it isn't mine, Joseph apparently was thinking, then it must be another man's. Mary must have been unfaithful. You'll see it next week. He was planning to divorce her. He thought that was the, the righteous thing to do. But the angel set him straight. And he believed. He believed that God could do the impossible. Getting, of our, getting ahead of ourselves just a little. How do you see the Lord's power in this situation here? Well, because the dynasty, the line of kings, starting with David, the dynasty continues even after the exile, sort of. See, some of these names in verses 12 and following, some of them are mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, like Zerubbabel. But the guys in verse 15, Eliad, Mathan, we don't know a lot about them. They weren't reigning on a throne somewhere. Even if they were, Joseph certainly wasn't. Joseph was a carpenter. And yet somehow another king comes forth from Joseph. God revives the seemingly dead dynasty when probably no one was expecting it. And also you might Notice, if you read commentaries, other things, you might compare this genealogy to the one in Luke, and you might notice some differences. Maybe that raises some doubts for you. Uh, Yes, Luke's is longer. It's because he goes in reverse order, and he goes all the way back to Adam. He also, in the final section, the section between the exile and King Jesus, he uses different names. Well, the best theory I've read in multiple places is that Luke is giving the physical family tree And Matthew is giving the royal line of succession. In other words, Luke says, Joseph's father was this guy, whose father was this guy. Whereas Matthew says, David's successor to the throne was this guy, whose successor was this guy. And in some cases, that line of succession skips to the second-born son or something like that. And you see, if you're tracing 14-plus generations, hundreds of years, those different methods of doing a genealogy might diverge and then overlap once again. But again, the Davidic dynasty had seemingly faded into obscurity. David's successor was much more off the map than than even Aragorn in Lord of the Rings. The the return of the king did not seem imminent to anyone. They hoped. Oh, how they hoped. Come thou long-expected Jesus, they would have sang and prayed, even if they didn't know his name was going to be Jesus. They hoped, but that hope was fading fast. You see, after the prophet Malachi, after the book of Second Chronicles, there was no prophetic word for 400 years. 
There was no great warrior king on the horizon. And out of nothing, seemingly, God brings forth the son of David, the savior of sinners, the Christ, the, the Messiah, that means. The anointed one, the one chosen by God for a special purpose. You know, we talk about Genesis 1 as creation ex nihilo, that fancy Latin word that means out of nothing. Isn't this salvation ex nihilo, out of nothing, or very close to it? And isn't that just the way that God delights to work? Where there is no hope, God gives hope. After darkness, God gives light. Is this just another boring history lesson? By the way, I didn't say this earlier. We have at least two history teachers in our congregation, and they would tell you that history done the right way isn't just names and dates. It does involve stories. It does involve all that color and meaning and narrative and all those things. But I ask you, is this list of names just another boring history lesson? I don't think so. I hope you don't either. 40 plus names here. More than 40 stories of God's faithfulness, only a few of which we've had time to cover. Which all culminates in this. Jesus is the son of David, promised by God's word, fulfilled in spite of human failure, born out of human weakness in order to save the weak. When this history lesson was first written, it was told to a people whose hope was fading. 400 years of silence. No word from God. No savior on the horizon. Like many today, they probably wondered whether they could still trust God's promises. It was also told to a people who were weak. And they knew they were weak. They no longer ruled over themselves. They were ruled by the Romans, a people that did not share their values. They couldn't do anything about it. They needed someone to come and save them. They needed someone trustworthy and reliable in an unreliable world. They needed someone who was gracious in an ungracious, unforgiving world. They needed someone who was just in an unjust world, someone who could right all the wrongs. They needed someone who was powerful because they weren't powerful weren't powerful enough to overcome their world or even overcome their own inner demons. They needed a savior. They needed a new and a better king, someone to subdue them to themselves, uh, subdue them to himself, excuse me, to rule and defend them, to restrain and conquer all of his and all of their enemies. And God gave them all that they needed and more, including a pretty interesting history lesson, a lesson that can give hope to a weak and weary people like us as well. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, would you, would you help us to see that we are weak and that our, in our weakness, your strength can be perfected, that in our weakness, we can find hope and security and peace and more. Father, we pray that you would break down our self-sufficiency, not, not that you would help us to despise the gifts you've given, but Father, help us give thanks above all for the giver of the gifts, the one who has given gifts in spite of our weakness, the one who ministers to us in all of our failure and all of our shortcomings and all of our sin. Be with us, we pray. 
and help us to cling close, closely to Jesus and his cross. Help us to wait patiently and eagerly for his return. We pray it all in Jesus' great name. Amen.